be Romans 15, verse 14. For a sermon, I've entitled Three Marks of Christian Maturity. I'm going to back up to verse 13 just uh, for a little context. We're going to read 13 to 15, and then we'll just focus in on 14. Here's what it says. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another. But I've written very boldly to you on some points, so as to remind you again, because of the grace of God, which was given to me. September 2nd, 1945, World War II was over and the American GIs were heading home. Having been away for four years, millions of young men were looking to get a job, buy a home, get married, and start having kids. And having kids, they did. 78 million children were born between 1946 and 1964, a vast demographic group known as the baby boomers. Now, because the United States was one of the few countries that still had its industrial production in place, not destroyed, the economic output of the country soared the first 25 years after the war. But Americans not only produced, they also consumed. Millions of houses were built, suburbs went up, uh, stores like Sears and Montgomery Wards sold young couples refrigerators and washers and dryers and that new invention, television. By 1955, half of all American homes owned one. And just because of the sheer number of the kids born in those years, the baby boomers have caused a shift in purchasing levels of various products over the years. I mean, young parents spend money on high chairs and strollers, but as their kids get older, they started buying skateboards and bicycles. One of the most popular cars at that time was a station wagon. You could put six kids, eight if they were small, inside. You just cram them in. Nobody wore seatbelts at that time. Well, eventually, the children of the baby boomers moved away. The parents traded in their station wagons for Mercury Marquis and Buick LeSabres, big, comfortable cars. And then, starting in 2012, uh, the first baby boomers started to retire. Now they're going off to Florida and Texas for the winter and buying motorhomes to travel the country. Well, by the way, it was in 2012 that you started seeing articles like, 60 is the new 40. These articles, inevitably written by a baby boomer, explained why being 60 today isn't like being 60 when your parents were that age. Mom and dad in their 60s were old and stodgy, but you in, at 60 are healthy and vibrant and alive. The calendar years may say that you're 60, but in your mind you know that you're still in your early 30s or 40s. I came across an article entitled 51 Signs That You're Getting Old, Large Print Edition. You want to hear some? You know that you're getting old when everything hurts and what doesn't hurt doesn't work. You know you're getting old when it takes twice as long to look half as good. I was not looking your way, my dear. <laughs> you know you're getting old when you and your teeth don't sleep together. Or when your knees buckle and your belt won't. Or your back goes out more than you do. Or your children begin to look middle-aged. Or your favorite part of the newspaper is 20 years ago today. Or that little old lady that you helped across the street is your wife. Or you sink your teeth into a stake and they stay there. Or you're proud of your lawnmower. 
where you talk constantly about the price of gasoline. I think we're all old now. <laughs> How about this? You enjoy hearing other, about other people's operations. Or this one. You consider coffee one of the most important things in life. Or this one. You dream about prunes. <laughs> or this one. Your idea of weightlifting is standing up. Now, some of you are younger, may not catch the humor in those signs of aging, but someday you will, because someday, apart from dying young, you are going to get old. Everyone gets older, but here's the question. Does everyone become more mature? I mean, we think about wisdom coming from age, but you know, some people, when they're old, are still quite foolish. And as we say, there's no fool like an old fool. But what does it mean to speak of maturity? Well, Webster's Dictionary defines maturity as the condition of full development having attained a final or desired state. But what if we're speaking of Christian maturity? That is maturity in the faith. Well, in a number of places in the New Testament, we're called on to grow in our faith, but how do we measure whether we are or not? What are the marks of a mature faith in the life of an individual or also in a church as a whole? You know, there's a book called Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. I'm sure we could come up with nine marks of a mature believer. But if we stick to just this one verse in Romans 15, 14, we find that Paul gives us three. First, uh, for in this verse, where he praises the Roman Christians, he gives us marks of Christian maturity. Well, because I want you to be a mature believer as you grow older, we want to consider these marks of maturity that Paul lays out before us. And to do that, I think we're going to pray and ask for God's help. Father God, I do pray for grace and mercy. Help us to see what's in this text. Father, for those of us who know you, that we would grow in maturity, and for those uh, who don't know you yet, Lord, that that process would start by their salvation. So bless us to that end, we ask in Christ's name, amen. You know, I have a cousin named Sharon, uh, who's a few years younger than I am. Her uh, mom, my Aunt Betty, had Sharon when she was like 47 years old. And Sharon had brothers and sisters, but the youngest besides her was 13 years older than her. And so not having adults or, or not having kids around her, even when she was real small, she talked like an adult. And I remember one occasion when we went to visit him, and when we got ready to leave, she walked us to the door, even though she was five years old, and she said this, we're so glad you folks could come today. You should stop by again. <laughs> well, Sharon sounded more mature than she actually was, but some Christians think they're more mature than they actually are. But Paul gives us uh, an objective standard by which we can measure maturity in individuals and in the church. And so the first thing he tells us is true of a mature believer, is that they're full of goodness. Full of goodness. Now, a lot of Christians will hop around from church to church looking for the perfect church. But as they say, if you ever find a perfect church, don't join it because it's no longer going to be perfect anymore. Like a hospital, a church is a place filled with people trying to recover and regain their health. In a hospital, it's your physical health, but in a church, it's your spiritual health. And when you read through the New Testament, you'll find out that most of the churches that the apostles wrote to we're dealing with real serious problems. Uh, some of them, like the church in Thessalonica, it was uh, their focus on the return of Christ, which is a good thing. But the idea that they came up with was that everyone should quit their jobs and live off of others until Jesus returns, which was a very bad thing. Church in Philippi, they were doing well, but they had a couple of ladies in the church who could not get along with each other, and Paul had to list them by name in the letter. The church in Colossae, they were buying into some weird Gnostic beliefs that Paul had to correct. Writing to the Galatians, Paul accused them of abandoning the gospel altogether. And in Corinth, they not only had wrong-headed ideas about the resurrection, but they also had 
the guys in the church visiting prostitutes, the wives withholding sex, and there was one guy who was actually living with his stepmother in a sexual relationship. But the church in Rome, they were doing pretty well. At the beginning of this letter, Paul wrote this, I thank God, my God, through Jesus Christ, for all of you, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. So it was with a smile that Paul could write what he did in verse 14 when he says, Now concerning this, my brethren, I'm convinced that you are full of goodness. What does it mean when we talk about goodness? What does it mean to call anything good? Well, I guess that depends on what you're talking about. I mean, what would a good knife be? Oh, where's Paul when I need him, huh? Well, it's one that works well for what you're using it for. Well, what about a good car? Well, from my perspective, it's one that doesn't cost much or costs a whole lot to maintain. Uh, it handles well. It gets decent uh, gas mileage, especially with gas, $4 a gallon. Uh, I want it to last for years and years, and I want to be able to rack up at least 400,000 miles on it, and that's why I only drive Toyotas and Hondas. What's well, a good person, though? Well, in an absolute sense, only God's good. That's what Jesus told that man who approached him, calling him a good teacher. I mean, he meant it as a polite compliment, but Jesus wanted this man to think through what it really meant to call Jesus good. But people can be good in a relative sense. Goodness is one of the fruits of the Spirit, contrasting with the sinful flesh and what it produces. The Spirit produces, according to Paul, he said this. He said, now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, drunken, uh, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like this, which I forewarned you, just as I forewarn you now, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. You live that way, you go to hell. Sure, you're not saved. But then he says this, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. Faithfulness, self-control, against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. The Greek word translated as goodness here means virtue or benevolence, uprightness of life. Being full of all goodness is a sign of Christian maturity because it shows that the Spirit has been working in your life so that you're acting and living the way that God intends. Good Christian men rejoice with hearts and soul and voice. Paul was rejoicing that these Christians in Rome were becoming and had become mature believers. And they showed it because they were full of goodness. Now, if you're a believer, if you've been born again and given new life by the Holy Spirit, there should be an ever-increasing goodness shown in your life. There should be an increasing display of Christ-like character developed in your life that should be evident to all. And you should be seeking to serve him and bring honor to him. Now let me ask you a question. What do people think about when they hear your name mentioned? Do they groan? What you want them to say is, he's a good man. Now, she's a good woman. And you want that to be true whether you're talking about believers or unbelievers when your name is mentioned. Remember what Jesus said? He said, you, meaning you're my followers, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they might see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Matthew 5, 14 to 16. So one of the marks of Christian maturity is just simple goodness. Well, the second mark of Christian maturity we find Paul prays here in the Roman Christians is that they were filled with all knowledge. You ever come across people that were know-it-alls? 
You know the type. You can't tell them anything because they know everything. I mean, they're not experts in a few areas. They're experts in every area. You find a lot of people like this in politics. The Austrian economist F.A. Hayek wrote a book entitled The Fatal Conceit, The Errors of Socialism. The fatal conceit, according to Hayek, was that political leaders think they have enough wisdom and knowledge to run a centralized economy where government's leaders micromanage all of what goes on. But the conceit is no one could know that much. They can't know how to make decisions for millions upon millions of people. It's fatal because when they think they're actually approving the economy, they're destroying it. And every single place where socialism is put in place, it's impoverished the people. As a Christian, even mature Christians, we cannot know everything about God. Indeed, because he's infinite, we will never know everything about God. We will be learning new things about him for all eternity. But we're always to be growing in our knowledge of him. They say that uh, when you're young, you sing the songs with much voice and little understanding. But as you get older, you sing the, uh, the hymns with much understanding and little voice. Well, where do we discover true knowledge of God? Where do we discover knowledge about ourselves, about life and death and what comes afterwards? It's in the truth book, the Bible. One of the marks of a mature Christian is that he or she knows the Bible well. You know, there's a board game called Trivial Pursuit. The word trivia is defined as details, considerations, or pieces of information of little importance or value. Now, thankfully, in the, in the game trivial, uh, uh, Bible Trivia, it does say underneath it the, the game where trivia is not trivial. And as I said, this book is the book of God, which tells us who we are, where we came from, why we're here, where we're going. It tells us what God has done for us in salvation through Christ. It gives us a hope for a glorious future if we trust in Jesus. And it warns us of dire consequences if we do not. And thankfully, God has not given us a multi-volume set of books to master. The Bible contains one volume, not 32, like the Encyclopedia Britannica. And you can get through life fine without mastering mechanics or being a master plumber. You don't need to master technology. You don't even have to master economics. But if you want to get through this life, all right, you have to master this book, especially if you want to be a mature Christian. Look, the Bible is a challenging book. I mean, no doubt Peter was talking about the book of Romans when he referred to Paul, and he said this, Paul, according to his wisdom given to you, also wrote to you, so also in all of his letters, speaking of these things, in which some things are hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort to their own, uh, like they do the rest of Scripture, to their own destruction. In other words, Peter's saying some of the stuff that Paul writes is hard, and he certainly had the book of Romans in mind. But because the Christians in Rome, in that church, were filled with all knowledge, Paul expected them to be able to follow the logic and line of thinking and argumentation in this book, which evidently they could because they were mature Christians. Now, some people think, well, you know, I don't really need to go to church and study the Bible, you know, because I can just read it at home and learn everything I need to know on my own. Really? You have nothing to learn from anyone else? If you think that way, you must be one of those know-it-alls. If teachers and preachers weren't necessary, then why did God establish those offices in the church? In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul tells us that after Christ rose from the dead and went back to heaven, it says, when he had ascended on high, he led captive 
a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And then he includes among these gifts, he says this, Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ might be built up until we reach a mature a unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we'll no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect a mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body is joined and held together by every supporting ligament, and it grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Ephesians 4, 11, 16. I mean, the elders of this church take this task very seriously. We seek to give you every opportunity that you can to learn the Bible. So what does our church in particular offer to that end? Well, first of all, we give you verse-by-verse -verse preaching through the entire books of the Bible. Topical sermons have a place, but the meat and potatoes of preaching should be expositional preaching through whole books of the Bible. You know, there's something, it's not in my notes, but there's something that's been going on in the last number of years where pastors are buying sermons online. The sermon's all done. I've seen them. I've gone, gone to these. And, and it'll have the outline. It'll have an introduction. And then they'll have a couple places where there are blanks where it says, put personal story here. Okay. Now, when I preached through Isaiah a number of years ago, I preached 150 sermons. You know, I spend about 15 to 20 hours on each sermon. Figure out the number of hours I spent. 4,000 hours in Isaiah. Can you imagine if I took 15 minutes to read a sermon ahead of time and then present it that day? These people should be sued for malpractice. Yet this is a common practice among evangelical pastors. It's amazing. No, my job is to teach God's word. Remember what Jesus said to Peter? Peter, do you love me? He says, yeah, I love you. Then feed my sheep. He doesn't mean give them broccoli salads. He's talking about giving them the word of God day in and day out. Remember what Jesus said, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The job of a pastor, the job of an elder, the job of a teacher is to teach God's people God's word. Secondly, along this line, we have God-centered Sunday school curriculum. For the kids, we use the Desiring God curriculum. What does it mean to be God-centered? It means the focus is on God, not so much on you. By the way, just think about a story like Zacchaeus was a wee little man and a wee little man was he, right? I remember being taught that as a kid and the idea was that Zacchaeus was this short little man who couldn't see Jesus, so he climbed up a sycamore tree to see him. Well, that's true, but the point of the story was you might have some kind of disability or some kind of thing that stands in your way, but just keep pushing through until you see Jesus. That's not the point of that story. The fact that he was short just makes it comical. The point of the story was that he was a tax collector. And Jesus reaches out to the people that everybody else despises. That's what it means to be God-centered. The story's about Jesus, not about Zacchaeus. We give you, in our Sunday school class, we teach you systematic theology, apologetics so you know how to witness, Christian worldview like we're doing right now. So we know how to apply the scripture to medical ethics, economics, politics, and culture. You don't learn fluff and stuff either. 
you don't get cotton candy, you get the meat of the word. We do a home Bible studies. In these, we're always working our way through some book of the Bible. Right now, in my Bible study, we're going through God's grand design, which traces a storyline of redemption through the whole of Scripture. It takes about six years to go through. Many of you have been through it. Some of you are going through it for a second time. Added to that, since 2013, all of our sermons that are preached go up on the web. I think we have 33,000 that have been downloaded. There's 780 sermons or something like that that you can access. If you miss, you can hear it later on. So we provide you with solid, soul-satisfying, faith-building truths that if you take in and act upon, it will fill you with all knowledge and lead you to greater Christian maturity. But let me ask you a question. We are very diligent to teach you the truth. How committed are you to learning it? If you show the same diligence and commitment to your job that you do to learning the Word of God, would you keep your job? Yeah, boss, uh, I'm not going to be in today either. I, I got some things that have come up. Yeah, yeah, I know I've missed a number of days, but uh, these things are important. I'll get back into the swing of coming regularly to work when life calms down and gets back to normal. Things come up. True. Sometimes you're out of town. Places you have to visit. Sometimes kids get sick. Occasionally you have to work on Sunday, but some Christians are just plain sloppy and undisciplined at getting at Bible study and church and Sunday school. By the way, do you guys know why it is that we have Sunday school after the service? <laughs> Very good. Actually, that is because in all the churches I've gone to where they have Sunday school um, before the service, it happens exactly the same. One half of the people in the church never come to Sunday school. I'm sure some of them intended, they just don't. And for the ones that do, one half of those don't come on time. They usually come about halfway through. And I've seen this at church after church. So it's simple. We have the service first, because if you're going to get to anything, you'll get to that, hopefully on time. And then past that, you're already here, so why not stay? By the way, we, we try to, you know, butter you up with a, the sweets out there to keep you to stick around and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> you know, and then, and then just be on time for things. When you do the Bible studies, do, do them ahead of time. You will double your learning if you do the Bible study ahead of time. You know, talking about being late, it reminds me of a young lady I had working for me when I managed a restaurant. And uh, she's supposed to start at 7 a.m. You know, breakfast rush starts at about 8 o'clock. But she was late. But she didn't arrive at 7.15. She didn't arrive at 7.30. She didn't even arrive at 8. And at 9 o'clock, I thought maybe she had died. But instead, she arrived at 2 o'clock, one hour before her shift was supposed to be over. Sorry, I'm late. I overslept. Eight hours? <laughs> Don't bother punching in. You're fired. What? She was shocked. Shocked and shocked for being a mere seven hours late. <laughs> but even if you are diligent to make regular use of it, like I said, you need to prepare. I mean, when I teach an adult Sunday school class, even if there's a lecture, or we're watching a video, you notice I always break you down into smaller groups. Why? Because it forces you to interact and think about the text more than you would otherwise. Why are we so insistent on teaching the Word of God? Why should you be so zealous to learn it? Because Jesus said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. One of the marks of maturity is that you're full, filled with knowledge, the knowledge of God through his Word. That brings us to our last thing that Paul mentions. He says, those who are mature like these people, are able to admonish others. 
Now the NIV says competent to instruct one another. The New Living Translation says, you know these things so well that you can teach others about them. The Greek word used here means to admonish, to warn, to put into mind. So think of like a coach, like an Olympic skating coach. That's good, but you have to make that turn tighter. That second jump needs to be higher. Yes, yes, that's better. All right, one more time. A mature Christian is not only one who knows the scripture well, but also can instruct others in the truth. Now, you might not hold an official office. You might not be a Bible study leader, a Sunday school teacher, but you can also still teach others informally just in the conversation. The Bible says, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. And sadly, though, some Christians, even after being in church for years and being taught, are incompetent to instruct others. The, the author of the book of Hebrews was frustrated by the readers that he was writing to writing to Jewish Christians about a character in the Old Testament named Melchizedek and how he's a type of the priesthood of Christ, the author says this in 5, 11 to 14. He says, about this, we have much to say, but it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk and not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who by the, uh, have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. You know, they say all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. But when it comes to knowing God's word so that you can admonish others, lack of work and lack of discipline makes Jack a dull boy and a slow learner, one who is way behind and the spiritual growth curve. You know, lots of moms right now are stressing out because they can't find baby formula for their children. Seems simple enough. I mean, if you can't find baby formula, then give them water and feed the little one a 16-ounce ribeye steak to tide them over until the morning. No, you can't do that. Little babies drink milk. Grown-ups eat steak. There's nothing wrong with young Christians, whatever their age, Learning the basics. I mean, that's where you have to start. You have to start where you're at. But there is something wrong with people who've been Christians for many years and yet need to be bottle-fed, spiritually speaking. I mean, a believer in that condition has stunted growth. And they can't be a blessing to other believers in being able to instruct them and admonish them and encourage them and even at times warn them all things that Jesus expects all of his followers to do with each other. I mean, if you go to a doctor... They'll ask you a lot of questions, right? To test, uh, run some tests to determine your physical health. Well, let me ask you some questions so as to determine your physical health and maturity. Here's the first one. How long have you been a Christian? How long have you been a Christian? A lot of you here aren't. But for those of you who are, how long have you been a Christian? When did that happen? You know, a couple of the people in our church, it's just been the last couple of years that they've gotten saved. One Got saved just 13 years old or so. Another one is, what, 57, 58? Years apart, and yet they're starting the Christian life at basically the same time. Bruce, is he here? Where's he, Bruce? Bruce, how old is your brother? 61. 61. And how long ago did he get saved? Just a couple months ago? Yeah, maybe three. Wow. And so, <laughs> 60. So you can, you can be a spiritual babe, and I don't mean that in any negative sense, and balding, which is great. <laughs> well, others of you have been saved for what, 10 years? 20 years? 30 years? I became a Christian on April 10th, 
1981, 41 years ago. Christian growth is a lifelong process, up and down, sometimes forward, sometimes back, two steps forward, two steps back. Like a stock chart, there's ups and downs, but for the true Christian, the trend line overall is upward. Let me ask you another question. Do you see signs in your life that you're maturing in your faith? I mean, is there more goodness in your life now than there was years ago? Five years ago, ten years ago? Are you less self-centered than you used to be? That's one of the, one of the fundamental things that's true of a non-Christian, is everything is related only to how it affects me. It just doesn't dawn on me that, you know, they should be concerned about others. Are you concerned about others? Are you more patient with people? Are you kinder than you used to be? Do you let things bother you less now than they did? Do you control your tongue better than you used to? Do you find that you have more victory over sin than you used to have? Do you find that your sins bother you now more than they ever did? These are all good indicators that you're full of goodness. And how are you doing mastering the scripture? Are you growing in your knowledge of God? Our knowledge must come into the head before it goes into the heart, but it has to start in the head. It says in Romans 12, 1-2, Paul said this, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what is the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. If we don't change the way we think, we are never going to change the way we live. We renew our minds through the Word of God. Let me ask you another question. Are you involved in the lives of other believers? Admonishing them? Encouraging them to keep going? You have to understand, Christianity is a team sport. God never intended us to go alone. There are no Lone Ranger Christians. Hebrews 10, 23-25 said this, Let us hold fast our confession of hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking the assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more, as you see the day drawing near. And Chris and I were talking last night on the phone. He called me up yesterday morning. He's like, hey, are you home? I said, yeah. He said, oh, I'm come over for prayer. I said, Chris, I got to go to a wedding today. I got to go pick up Nathan at the airport. You know, Chris normally has to work Saturday, so I, he doesn't get to come pray with us. But we were talking for a little while and just talking about the signs of the times and how everything is changing, how quickly it's changing, and the moral decline. And I said, you know, if we end up in another worldwide depression, I said, it's going to lead to the Antichrist and Jesus is going to be here really soon. I said, yeah, I think you're right. But I want you to think about what was the thing that Jesus, whenever he was talking about end times and what was going to happen, he always gave parables afterwards, but what was the point of every single parable that he gave after talking about the end times events? Be ready. Be ready. He said some of them weren't ready because they fell asleep. Some of them weren't ready because they didn't invest as they were supposed to when he was gone. Some of them weren't ready because they didn't treat God's children the way they were supposed to. What are you talking about? We never saw you hungry. We never saw you thirsty. So what are you talking about? I, when you didn't do it to them, you didn't do it to me. The point is always the same. Be ready. And one of the things that Jesus said that the last day would be characterized, he said it would be like the days of Noah. And I assumed he meant like just as wicked as it was in the days of Noah. That's not what he says. It'll be like the days of Noah because people were marrying and giving in marriage, doing, going about just their daily life, 
until the flood came and swept them all away. That's where the church is today. Most people, you know, was talking to someone in my Bible study the other day. I went to one of those seeker-sensitive type services, right? Where they, you know, tell you how to have family life, how to be happy, blah, 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 blah. I said, were there a lot of people there? Oh, yeah, a lot of people there. Yeah. Give people what they want, they keep coming. Give them the truth, eh, it's not much of a market for that. But I hope you've invested in the truth because you're going to find out in the long run it pays wonderful, eternal dividends. Know the Word of God. Know how to instruct people in it. Be filled with goodness. And find the joy that comes from doing just what God tells us to do. Let's pray. Our Father in God, this is so simple. There's nothing comp I mean, Romans is a tough book, but this part isn't. One, two, three. But sometimes the simple things are the hardest ones to do. Lord, in one sense, this is all a byproduct of your Holy Spirit working in us, but we know that Paul told us we're supposed to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who's at work in us both to will and to work. We work with your Spirit by yielding up our life to him, and so we may be filled with goodness and be a blessing to others. And Father, I pray for that. And for the people here who don't know you, Lord, I pray that they would do what they need to do, which is put themselves in a place where they hear the word of God and ask to, that you would save them. Because, Lord, we know that Jesus never turned away anyone who came looking for help. And what do we need more than anything but salvation? So bless us now, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.